Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. This is the first episode in our three-piece series on the past, present, and future of public spaces in Canada. In these episodes, we'll cover nature, cities, and big national undertakings, things we do, have done, or might do together in spaces meant for all of us. We'll also discuss threats to public spaces, of which there are many, and what is being done to address them. Now, nature is the ultimate public space. There's something fundamental about it, something essential. Nature pre-existed the built world, and in one form or another, it will outlast it, too. But not everyone has equal access to nature, and some communities and groups are less likely to have access than others. In that way, it's very much like other spaces, the ones we've created. There are a number of reasons people ought to have both a right and an ability to access public spaces in nature. Among them are physical health, mental health, education, and pure, simple joy. One organization is fighting to secure that access, especially for youth from low-income households and BIPOC communities. To understand their work and the battle for green public spaces, we ask, who gets to spend time in nature? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Andrew Young, the Executive Director of Outward Bound Canada. Okay, let's start by talking about nature as a public space. I, I think that when a lot of people talk about public spaces, they might be thinking of parks and sidewalks and squares, but there are spaces beyond cities too. I mean, what kind of public spaces are we talking about or semi-public spaces are we talking about when we talk about nature? Yeah. So in Canada, um, it, you know, it, it depends really on where you, where you are, um, you know, access to nature, um, is really important in particular because so many people who live in Canada live in, in urban settings. I think, you know, it's over 80% of people are living in urban centers. Um, I can speak from my experience in Toronto. I know that, you know, within Toronto, you know, there's a lot of discussion about access to, you know, the routine systems, um, into parks as well. Um, and, and then outside of the city, there are, other, you know, provincial parks, there's crown land. Um, there's lands that are owned by conservation organizations. Um, some of which have, you know, a variety of views on, on access, you know, to those lands, you know, some kind of prescribe to the, you know, build a fence around it and <laughs> let nature take its course. Whereas others, you know, have a little bit more of an open, um, open policy for, you know, and, and try to work with people who like to recreate on those, uh, on those lands as well. Um, you know, so, you know, Canada is abundant, uh, abundant amount of nature. There's no shortage of nature comes in all different types of forms, you know, public, public, public land, parks, privately held conservation spaces, everything in between. Yeah. And, and yet you mentioned there's an abundance and I think most people would, when they think about Canada, say, okay, we'll describe right. Canada. Well, it's big and it's cold and it's got lots right. of nature. And that's generally true. It's not universally true. It's generally true. Uh, and yet access to that nature, yeah. to that space is an equal, is an equally shared, right? Some folks have, have more access than others, have easier access than others. Um, you, what are sure. the barriers to, to accessing these spaces? Yeah, I, I think that what I, what we see is, you know, within the, within natural, natural spaces within the city, um, tend to be 
and and then and then in particular outside the city tend to need to be accessed by some form of transit. It's very mm-hmm. it's not often that you could just walk there. So you know you can take the bus, um, in in within places in the city or the subway or you know whatever transit you have. Um, and then when you get outside of the city, uh, our public transit system. So this is just one barrier. Is it, very uh, <laughs> it's it's it, it, it's it's not great once you leave the. The, I mean, some would argue it's not great within the yeah. city either, but, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, <laughs> but once you try to get out of the city, it, it becomes even that much more of a challenge. And often those trans transportation hubs are car centric themselves. So you have to <laughs> get to that end of the line and then they'll have to drive somewhere. So, I mean, that's probably one of the most basic, I think, you know, barriers. And there are organizations who are dealing with, you know, trying to deal with that particular barrier. Um, I think, you know, if you also think about it, you know, I, I think about it akin to like, you know, some of the public health epidemics that we've seen in this country, whether it's related to, you know, diabetes, you know, um, mental health, heart, heart and stroke issues, um, the, the, the determinants of health are also um, the things that are creating barriers for people. And what I mean by that is, if you're working in a factory or you're working in um, a warehouse or you're, you're, you know, working, you know, in construction, um, you know, whatever the, you know, those things are, your, your, your job um, also creates, you know, different hours and, and also, um, you know, has different requirements from you if you're working in an office and you have maybe some more flexibility. So I think that's one, I think the other part too, you know, that's, you know, related to the transit issue, um, is also just in terms of in, income equity, um, you know, so obviously if you want to drive a car to one of these places, you also need to be able to afford to drive that car. Um, and so, you know, when you compound that issue with ish, like things around, um, uh, you know, affordability of, you know, housing and food, uh-huh. you know, all of a sudden access to nature becomes an extra thing to do. Um, despite many health benefits of doing it, you know, you you know, it, it might be perceived as a choice, but the system is really stacked against you for actually accessing that nature, you know, from a, you know, a time and affordability perspective. So I, I think that like those, you know, those are similar issues that we see, I think in public health realms, you know, accessing the things that are good for you, whether that's really good, healthy food or accessing, you know, vitamin D and getting out into nature. Um, you know, the, there's very similar barriers that exist there. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting point because on the one hand, it's it's holistic as you mentioned. It's related to housing. It's related to income. It's related to job type. It's related to transit. Uh, it's also a good example of how we can have shared public spaces and shared rights that aren't really equal because of those things. Uh, your organization works with youth quite a bit, and and there's a lot of inequality when it comes to youth and access uh, to outside. Right. How does that break down? Who gets to access outside and who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a very long continuum of that question. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's not necessarily, you know, two sides of a coin, certainly, you know, every, as every issue around equity has escalated through and then after the pandemic, um, the same thing is happening for young people as it relates to, um, either core curricular access to the outdoors, you know, through their schools or what we would call extracurricular activities. Um, you know, through the pandemic, what we saw was people with means, you know, with more, you know, wealth, um, were able to continue to access, you know, those green spaces, either through just, you know, family trips, for example, or through, 
their schools. They continue to, um, you know, provide those experiences. You know, for example, independent schools were not necessarily, um, uh, you know, well, they had some of the same public health restrictions. You know, the, the governance model there allowed for them to be more flexible in terms uh-huh. of how they were doing things. Um, whereas in the public system, you know, with such a high, you know, thankfully a very high focus on equity, um, you know, the, their, it was harder for teachers and principals to get their kids out, outside for a, a whole host of reasons. Um, and some of those reasons, you know, which continue today are, are pretty obvious. Um, it's not cheap to bring kids outside. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it, it's an additional cost to what is happening in terms of delivering you know, the, you know, the core curriculum, um, in particular, if you want to leave the neighborhood of the school, you know, you need to pay for busing, you need to, um, you know, pay potentially for supply teachers. Um, you know, so there's a whole litany of reasons why it costs more to do those things. And then therefore, you know, what do you do with that? You pass that on to the parents. That's not a great idea in a public system. And then at the same time, um, you know, that there's, as we know, there, you know, school, public school boards are, are facing funding challenges um, to deliver their, their core programming. So, so kids through their schools have, have seen lots of access. There's also, um, a significant issue around risk management, um, as well. So, or, or at least perce- perception around risk. Um, so when you take kids, you know, for example, on a, a hiking trip or a canoe trip, um, the, uh, or a sea kayaking trip, you know, there's obviously inherent risks uh-huh. in doing that. Um, and, and so, Working with school boards, um, a lot of public schools are doing that, but it, it it it's a different calculus for them in terms of like um, what are we signing our kids up to do? And it's easier to take the route of we're just going to make this really easy and not do it. So I think that's another barrier. And then another one that we see as well is um, the pandemic is really hard on education and and teachers and principals and. Um, so some of the feedback we're getting as we're trying to partner with schools sometimes is that, you know, we'd love to do it, but we're exhausted <laughs> um, and it's an, it is another thing to do. Um, right. So, so all of these, and, and this shows up in all different ways at different schools and different school boards, some are doing an awesome job. Some are, you know, wanting to do that awesome job and, and, and have, you know, these barriers in front of them. Um, and then, you know, we also do work with independent schools and we see, you know, that being stick handled with a lot more ease, right? And so that issue then just compounds the privilege of access to nature, you know, because if you can afford to do it, you will, you know, the benefits are obvious and we'll talk more about those. Um, but if, if you're, you're trying to deal with funding shortfalls and, um, you know, a you know, coming out of the pandemic, all of those different barriers, you know, I, I, it, it makes it easier just to not, not to do it and, and impractical to do it in some cases. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, for every, every small additional barrier, I mean, maybe you can, you can surmount one, but then two, it gets to be a bit much. If you're hitting three or four, you're probably not going to do something, right? I think of it just day to day, like, you know, making the bed, keeping the house clean. There's these little things, right, that are that are barriers. And of course, there are much bigger things like, you know, going away to school, for instance. Uh, I'm thinking about yeah. growing up and in, in, in the cities I've lived in and where I was more likely to go outside and, and do things. And when I lived in Vancouver, you could access 
a lot of the natural world by transit. I would remember we used to, you know, take the bus or the train and we'd find ourselves pretty close to a hike. You can't get to all of them, but you could actually get to some of them. Uh, that becomes a little harder in Toronto. It gets a little harder in, in Ottawa too. Um, so there, that principle of things being not just accessible, but sort of easily accessible is, is, is pretty important, especially because there are benefits to it. And I, I want to pick up on a point you made earlier about the several different types of benefits that come with, with being outside. Now, first, there's the fundamental right to access space that we share in person. I mean, that, you know, that is a reason in and of itself to have it, but there's more to it. So why else should people go outside? That might seem like a silly question, but I suspect there's some people who are wondering, well, well, so what? Who cares? What's the point? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the benefits, I think, are, are, are massive. There is another barrier there in terms of even when things are easy from a logistical perspective. There's also, um, from what we understand as well, there might be cultural barriers to that or, or the sense of feeling welcomed in those spaces yeah. as well. Um, and I think that that, um, you know, so if you can cross all of those other barriers, you know, for some folks, that is another thing to, that, you know, they, they, you know, that might be a consideration as well. Like, am I going to be welcomed in that space? Um, but I think in terms of, you know, once you kind of get through all those barriers and get it out there, there's many benefits. Um, and the first one is, you know, the obvious thing around, you know, just access to vitamin D, and, you know, there's all that kind of research about, you know, just spending time outside and getting sun and, uh-huh. um, and being within the trees and, you know, listening to the, you know, the creek flow or seeing wildlife, um, you know, that that's a really grounding experience. And, and I think there's, you know, research happening now and, and has happened that, you know, shows that there's actual physical and mental health benefits to that, to that. Um, I think the other part for us um, as well is that, you know, we are an education, um, we are an educational organization. And so um, the way we look at nature is that it's, you know, the greatest classroom in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're able to remove some of those logistical and cultural barriers to accessing the outdoors, you know, once we get people out there, um, it's something that is kind of like, um, it's, it's like a, so it's a great, it, it becomes a great equalizer, right? Because for a lot of the kids that we're serving, whether they're, you know, kids who, you know, you know, and their personal interests are really into the arts or really into the sports or, you know, whatever, you know, or whatever combination of that thing is, um, um, or really into video games, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know, what we see when kids actually get out there, um, and people generally get out there is that once they kind of get over this, you know, a slight feeling of discomfort of, you know, being away from the comforts of your home, um, I would say most people really enjoy it. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, and, and because it's this novel environment um, and, you know, a bit of an equalizer, I think it actually provides a really great community building um, and educational environment for people to develop what we would call social emotional learning skills. You know, you're working in an environment that's not known to you necessarily. So, or, or playing an environment that's not known to you. So you're overcoming, you know, real life problems, um, you're doing that, you know, either by yourself or in a group. Um, and so the, the learning benefits of that from, you know, you know, whether you call it social emotional learning or character education, you know, just developing, you know, yourself as a person, um, by learning in that environment are, is really rich. And, and that stuff that we, you know, as, as we're bound and, 
many other outdoor education organizations in Canada and around the world have have studied is that that it's the it's you know there's the mental health benefits the physical health benefits but then there's also just the the benefit of you know developing your character and developing you know those social emotional skills which will set you up for more success in life um you know down the road in particular with young people and with adults you know we've seen we've seen adults come on you know through some of our programs to all of a sudden make a huge career change because they've had some realization out there and you know discovered a piece of themselves that they didn't know existed and i think it's just you know it's a little bit of just getting back to where we probably were meant to be in the first place before you know we moved into cities and factories and all that kind of stuff it's a little bit of getting back to first principles a bit too yeah i think so i mean it's funny is is we sometimes forget how stressful cities are just as built environments they're loud they're intense Uh, there's lots of things going on Uh, there's lots of sensory stimuli happening very quickly and it's a lot to take in and it taxes us and it stresses us and it's extraordinarily stressful i mean we all, those of us who've gone outside to these quiet places know the sort of shift you feel, your shoulders relax, your breathing probably slows down, you're just, you know, fundamentally more comfortable because it's it's a more comfortable space. And there's there's something to that, right? I mean, it's just, you know, being in a less stressful environment is just fundamentally a nice, beneficial feeling, right? And and But there's also, you know, sort of intimated, there's a confidence element too. And I think of that in my own experience, when I've gone outside and I've done something, you know, you you portage or you you go and do some interior camping or you do a tough hike or you climb or a tough route and and then or you know you spend a week outside and like oh I spent a week out in nature or whatever it might be like oh my god I you know it gives you a confidence boost that in a sense that well right. I can do these things that maybe I can do these other things too, right? Presumably that has some knock-on effects uh, once you get back to the city, right? Or wherever you may live. Yeah, and I think that's a great a great point. And, um, you know, what, what in our outward bound language, we call that, like, you know, the transference of learning, right? So it's, you know, this very intentional, you know, being also being intentional about being outside. I mean, it, you don't always have to be. Sometimes it's nice to go for a hike and not think about anything. <laughs> but you know, but you know, it's all. It is also, you know, it can be very beneficial to to do those things that you're describing and reflect on that experience and think about. Yeah, it's exactly like I've acquired these skills. I'm feeling better about myself. Um, if I can do that, I can do anything. You know, like <laughs> that kind of mentality um, is very real, right? And and I I think that there's a you know a bit of a nuance there too about you know like are you going outside to be outside um, or are you going on some sort of journey as well, right? There's, you know, the ways in which people access nature is, is very different, you know, going, you know, like there's nothing wrong with walking with your family and car camping and, you know, sitting and, around the campfire and doing a hot dog roast, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's, sure. that's a great thing to do. And it's also a great thing to do to, you know, as you've described, spending seven days in the backcountry um, or 21 days in the backcountry or whatever the number is. Um, and, and, you know, it really, kind of pushing your boundaries a little bit more. So, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's just so many different ways to access nature and, and the city space in, within the city, um, you know, I'm in Toronto and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a ravine, you know, 400 meters from my front door that is about, a, you know, a kilometer long. And I mean, that's part of my, my day every day as I, I take my dog down there and it's, you know, it's a functional thing. I need to walk my dog somewhere, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I do realize how lucky that is to be able to, you know, spend the first half hour of my day in that space and just, um, and just enjoying that moment, right. Uh, before the, all the chaos 
shoes. Yes, tell me about it. I, I spent a brief period of my life when I was in Vancouver. Uh, I, I would go up. This is a, a little bit aside from the point here, but I, I would do the grouse grind once a week uh, on Wednesday mornings. Right. I'd get up at sort of five five thirty, get up there, be on on the mountain, ready to go by just after six. There was never a better day than a day that started. You don't have to go do the grouse grind. I mean, I know a lot of people don't like it. But it was a great it was a great workout when it was quiet. Um, but you know, you those were the best days. And of course, there are other ways to achieve that without having to you know do however many thousand steps that thing that the hellscape yeah, yeah, is. Right. Uh, but but it does center right. you in, in an important way. And it's funny is when you mentioned earlier, you know, to some extent, you felt like this is getting back to where we're meant to be. I think of all the things that we do to try to achieve those feelings, you know, meditation, yoga, apps, YouTube videos you know, expensive retreats, all of this stuff. And it strikes me that having tried some of those things, uh, you know, a little right. bit of time spent outside in a park seems to get pretty close to the same outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't tried those apps, so I'll take your word for it, but yeah. No, I outside's mean, it, better. Outside's yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, I think there's something there, and, you know, and I think that, I mean, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing policy shifts around that and for various different reasons, you know, like, I mean, there's Canada's got the 30 for 30 commitment, you know, in terms of conservation, nature, obviously that's related to biodiversity loss and climate change, but, but there's, I think there's also a recognition happening at the same time around things like eco-anxiety, people worried about the future of the world. <laughs> and, and so there's the benefits that, you know, the, the tangential benefits of, of preserving that land that will, you know, hopefully preserve access as well, or, or hopefully even increase access um you know and and i think like you know uh, you know the federal government and various provincial governments now are are creating new um urban either national or provincial parks as well right which i think is a really good initiative trying to bring and preserve that closer to where people are living and you know the you know the rouge national park was the first one here in in toronto um in the you know in the east end of scarborough um and so I, I think there is, you know, generally a recognition by policymakers that, that you know, for a whole host of reasons, you know, preserving nature and, um, you know, for for climate change reasons and for, I think, you know, health reasons um, is, is a really important thing to do. Are, are governments doing enough, though? I mean, so you, you mentioned some successes there, and it is fundamentally a political question at the end of the day because it is about preserving or extending public spaces and making them accessible. That's all going to be public policy. Housing is going to be sure. public policy. Transit is going to be public policy. Uh, a lot of employment standards are going to be public policy. So there, there's a huge role for government there before you even get to the actual spaces, which government is also going to have a role in. Uh, and of course, in Canada, we're dealing with at least three levels of government, in some cases four, in some cases you have indigenous levels of government yep. as well. Uh, so you've got to deal with you know, indigenous levels of government, municipalities, uh, provinces in the federal government. So that's always tricky. Is, is, is enough happening or is there some bit missing? Yeah, I don't think on any specific file a government will ever be able to do enough. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, and and um, and the, and depending on what, how how you look at that, um, you know, some might argue they are, some might argue they aren't. I mean, I think when I relate back to the work that we're doing with young people, um, and uh, you know, the very obvious, you know, disparity in terms of access to that experience, 
um, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not equitable right now. Um, not even close. And so I think that government and therefore, you know, the people who vote for government, I think need to think about, about that part, right? Like in terms of, you know, what are the experiences and what are we, what are we expecting out of the education system for, um, for all kids? Um, I think that's really important. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that there's going to be a need to, to think about, yeah, really the benefits and, and, you know, is outdoor education a cost center or is it an investment in the future of development of young people? Um, I think that's, um, as it stands now, more or less, I think folks look at it as a cost center, um, as opposed to this is going to help maybe a, a one of many tools in building a generation of resilient youth who are ready to take on the world's problems. <laughs> yep. Listening to you say that reminds me of a, of a great bit from one of my favorite shows, Community, where the school board guys are critiquing the, the community college saying, you know, you guys aren't an asset, you're a liability, you don't produce any revenue. And they say, yeah, we're a school. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, but, right. but to the point is, is these things, we build schools for a reason. They're investments. You can't um, have a functional society without them. You certainly can't have the marketplace that, that people want without them. And um, is it a matter then of thinking of, of nature, at least insofar as your organization is concerned, as an extension of an education space? I mean, you called it earlier sort of the greatest education space in the world. Is, is the idea that we need to have a shift in how we think about these public spaces uh, to include them as, as, you know, fundamentally classrooms? Yeah, I think about other countries around the world who are doing this right now. Um, so some are similar in terms of our public or a political system, and some are quite different. Uh, you know, so right now in Scotland, for example, um, they are uh, there's a, a um, there's a bill before the the Scottish National Parliament on ensuring that every kid in school gets at least five day a five day um, outdoor education experience, a, a part of their, uh, of their school experience, which doesn't seem like a huge number, but that is a huge number relative to what kids are getting right now in Canada. Right. Um, it would be an exponential increase. Um, in other countries like Singapore, for example, um, they've actually mandated that every kid in, in Singapore will have a, um, an outdoor education experience. In that case, it's actually outward bound who's delivering it. Um, could be any outdoor provider. Um, Think we're pretty good at what we do <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but but you know i think that you know that but the the principle of that is is the the most important thing that you know they recognize that that is is really important um and i think you know i unless you know anecdotally i think also places like finland and things like that have who have often or you know referred to as having a really great education public education system um you know outdoor learning i believe is a bigger part of 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 that uh, experience um, as well, right? So, so we're seeing other jurisdictions um, around the world who are embracing the the benefits of outdoor learning. Um, whether it's yeah, just taking the class outside, which we've seen more of in the, some more of in the pandemic, or more intentional outdoor education, environmental education experiences, actually bringing kids on the land. Um, yeah, so others are doing it in in, in different ways. Um, in Canada, you know, where there's a lot of successes as well. So. You know, I, I was at um, the COP15 meetings in um, Montreal prior to, uh, to the holidays, and um, uh, you know, there's there's a uh, 
a teacher from Peterborough who came and spoke about this outdoor education program they had developed within a public system in Peterborough. And it was incredible what has this, this teacher has been able to do um, in that school and with that community. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the question for me on that is like, how do you make that become more normal? Right. Uh -huh. it, it was such an exceptional program. And, you know, it, it's like, why is that not available to more kids right across this country? Because of what, you know, the way he was approaching it, um, you know, was, was really good. Incidentally, that's, yeah. uh, that's where I'm from and where I grew up. And I was just thinking of, of a much smaller example, something like that. But I remember as a kid getting to go outside from time to time for class. You know, it would be nice outside. And the teacher would say, let's just go sit under a tree and do the lesson today. And we, yeah. there was nothing we loved more than getting to go outside for class. And of course, it was the same thing. Totally. You just got to sit outside under a tree. Uh, but I can remember it vividly, even at, at a young age, sitting under a big tree. And uh, it's it, you forget how how joyous that is, <laughs> how simple right. it is. Um, totally. I mean, how, how do we yeah. get there? I mean, like, you know, your, your organization is working on this. You make a great case for it. How do we get to the point where being outside in these public shared public spaces is just a normal part of our education system and then ideally a normal part of our lives once we've left the education system and we're just, you know, day to day working citizens? Yeah. Well, you know, your your story about that experience is something that resonates with me. I mean, I I grew up in Toronto and it was um you know, I one of my most memorable experiences was we we would spend five days on Toronto Island at the outdoor center there you know, growing up and it, like of all of my memories, you know, from school, that is the one that is the most vivid um, to this day. Um, and I was, you know, probably a tough student, <laughs> wasn't exactly, you know, well behaved in the four walls of, uh, of, of school and, and those things really, um, those, those experiences were, were really meaningful, right. And made a big difference. And I think, you know, for rate, you know, in terms of how do we move the needle? I, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a, a bit of an identity issue around outdoor education and, um, around, you know, and, and by virtue of the fact that it has been typically, you know, a pay to play model, uh -huh. um, and, and the public subsidy for that has, um, has changed significantly, you know, from when I was a kid, when you were a kid to, to now we've seen significant shifts in that my kids are in the public system right now. And I mean, we're, we're fortunate to be able to put them on programs outside of school um but in through their school i mean i think they barely get any outdoor ed um and so uh, what we're actually in the process of doing right now is we're working in a coalition of other environmental ngos um which is part of the reason why i was at the meetings in, at uh, cop 15 is that we're trying to build a bit of a groundswell um and an easy option for governments to embrace this idea that environmental it, outdoor nature education is um is a it should be an issue of of public good and that it should be available to all um so you know we're bound earth rangers ducks unlimited um uh sustainable forestry initiative and um and the canadian wildlife federation uh have, have partnered up and um, are actively you know engaging with um with officials to that have that conversation of how do we how do we make this more accessible to folks? How do we help 
kids learn about nature, uh, learn more about climate change, learn more about, you know, biodiversity loss, get people on the land, experience the benefits of nature themselves, support um, issues like, you know, eco-anxiety and um, and those types of things. So I, I think that it, it, it it's like, a, you know, it's like changing anything. <laughs> and then you kind of need like a, you know, a coalition of the willing of people who are, you know, seeing this as important and, and, and try to work within our democratic systems to make that a thing. Um, you know, so I think that that's, um, you know, that's something that we're doing. Um, there's lots of other groups who are doing those types of things, um, as well. I mean, I think there's, there's, I think there's a groundswell of folks who are in this kind of nonprofit charitable sector who, um, are, are trying to push for that change. Um, and we're also seeing indigenous communities pushing for that in a big way with, you know, with a lot of great success and probably a lot of challenges as well. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're, there's, yeah, there's, I think there's a, a reckoning happening right now that, uh, this, this needs to become more of a priority. I want to close out on this because I, I, I observe a sort of encroachment on public spaces, especially in cities, a monetization of these spaces. We, you know, we're going to talk about this on an episode with, about, uh, tech in cities and sort of privatization of city spaces and basically trying to turn every last bit of usable land into something that can be monetized, can be patented, can be turned into a data hub, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like these natural spaces are kind of the the great barrier, the great bastion of of a public space that that is not fully captured and monetized, although there's efforts to do that. Um, are, are you hopeful that we can we can preserve these spaces and even extend them? You mentioned there are new parks that are coming online. Do you think people are, are are really? You mentioned this this groundswell and this shift. Are people willing to say, okay, well, these spaces, these outdoor spaces, are so fundamental. They're so important. They're ours, and you can't have them. Google or Amazon or whoever it might be. Um, at the end of the day, do you think we can preserve them and extend them? I think that there is active. So I think it depends on what level, you know, you're looking at that. I mean, it's, um, you know, so what we're seeing, you know, from the federal, you know, in some cases with the federal and provincial government, you know, the commitments around 30 for 30 um, in terms of conserving land, I think is a really important initiative. Um, you know, the development of uh, more provincial parks is really important. Obviously, I think those are great things um, and it would be great to be doing more of them. Um, but you know, that, that, that effort is, is underway. Um, you know, I think within the cities themselves, I mean, that, that's often, you know, where people are more aware of that because you, you know, there's more people living there and you experience that, you know, more every day. And, um, you know, yeah, I think you have to be hopeful about it. I think it's, um, you know, and there are pressures and challenges, you know, we're seeing, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm sure part of what you'll talk in one of the future episodes is around you know, housing and, you know, the, the dilemma or the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, we need to build housing on, on green space. Um, yeah, is, we just finished an episode a, about a, that actually. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. I haven't <laughs> listened just, to it yet. So no, I'll no, it, yeah. it, this yeah. is a big problem though. The idea, you know, opening up the green belt, which right. was just sort of patently ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you look at the, you know, and, and I think that, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, it comes back to what is in North America, we expect, you know, in terms of our living standards as well. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you travel in Europe and, you know, the density of cities is, you know, three, four times of what we're seeing in, in, in Canada. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it, it's 
at some point we need to, you know, change that expectation um, a little bit. And, um, you know, that's happened in Vancouver. You know, the, the density of Vancouver is much more significant than the density of, of Calgary, for example, um, you know, who has, who feels like they have endless space. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, there's the, the population pressure challenge is going to be huge. Uh, so I think that, you know, um, tens of thousands of new people come, or hundreds of thousands of people coming every year um, to support our economy. Uh, you know, that there is a balance there. I'm sure that uh, government needs to strike. But I do think that, um, you know, some of the initiatives underway are, are, are good and, and, and there needs to be more. And I'm, I am hopeful about it. Um, and, and this generation of young people now who are going to inherit, inherit, you know, the, the worst of climate change, the worst yeah. of biodiversity loss, I don't think as it all, you know, as that electorate ages, we'll see how they do, um, as well in terms of how there's, how, you know, did their, did their minds shift as they get older as well? I mean, or are they able to, you know, kind of push that from, um, kind of from a grassroots type of groundswell. So. Yeah, a lot, I, I don't know what the conclusion is going to be, but I think, you know, I, um, knowing a lot of kids in that generation through you know, both work and, uh, first of all, uh, reasons, I don't I don't think they're going to stand for it. <laughs> well, that's a good note on which to end. That's a good hopeful note. And, and I remember being asked one time what gave me hope, and it was like young generations who aren't taking any of our bullshit. That gives me some hope. So I'm very, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad that you do the work you do. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be with you, David. Thanks. And uh, we'll talk hopefully again soon. I hope so. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Rosh Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be and help me have some time to get outside and do some things, which I get to do this summer in my little sports rec league. I've, I've entered that phase of my life, sports multi-sport rec league that's how i get outside and some hikes yeah. see it's it's i don't just preach it i practice it too but uh <laughs> that'll be it that'll be that's another good. episode i'll run through all my adventures in some future episode that i'm sure people will absolutely love uh, and until then we will see you back here in two weeks